Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce this week's guest is my producer, Sari Soffer. Jen, I feel like this is your dream imagined, isn't it? <laughs> totally. So today's guest is Liz Fair, Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter, and for all intents and purposes, a feminist icon from the early 90s. And we're super excited to have her on the show as she gets ready to release her first album in over a decade. It's called Soberish, and it's coming out June 4th. Yeah. I got a sneak peek from the album, and it's fantastic. I mean, Liz Fair fans, both in terms of the music, the lyrics, are going to be pretty excited. So I didn't get to listen to the whole album, but you gave me an education in Liz Fair by making me listen to her first album, Exile in Guyville, which is an awesome name for an album. And it's just so rebellious, but relatable and so much fun. My favorite is Fucking Run. You know, I think the name of it was so shocking, particularly in the early 90s. But it's also just, you know, talk about a a rock album that's kind of perfect from beginning to end, Exile in Guyville. Like, there was nobody that was more critically acclaimed than Liz Fair. It's interesting. It was actually 25 years ago since Liz Fair released that album, Exile and Guyville. And I've heard her say, like, you know, wow, look at all these women musicians now. They're all so confident. They have their own unique original sounds. Um, and yet people of my generation are like, it still sucks. <laughs> you know, men are still the gatekeepers telling women how to sound and how to look, how to act. So I looked up this study to back that up. And only about 13% of songwriters of top songs were women. So that's men telling their stories. And only 2.5% of producers, 2.5% are women. Not to mention that women of color are virtually non-existent in those stats. We have to talk to Liz about what progress has been made in music and what's still left. And also what the gap was about. Right. There was a lot of momentum and then it kind of just plateaued. It just kind of plateaued. And like, you know, for the kind of music that I like and listen to, and this is limited, but it was like Liz Fair, Hole with Courtney Love, L7, PJ Harvey. They had big success. And I thought that that meant music business was changing. You'd be getting to 50-50 in terms of who you heard on the radio with men versus women. And like, it just didn't happen. Right. And now two things are happening women songwriters in your generation are, I think, having this moment where they're Mm -hmm. writing their own songs, they're getting into production, they're minding their own gates, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yes. I'm not even such a big Taylor Swift fan, but I feel like it always comes back to her, like, reclaiming her music, reclaiming her identity, remaking her identity every few years. Like, she really has been sort of the example in this generation of how to change the way that women exist in the music scene. I feel like she's sort of the bridge, right? And then women like Liz see a moment to come back and be part of that. As you know, I've been preparing very hard for this. So let's talk to Liz. Liz Fair, welcome to Just Something About Her. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. I have been going down a very deep Liz Fair rabbit hole the last two weeks. Oh, yes. I can imagine the prep work. (laughs) No, I loved it. I went back and listened to Exile and Guyville, your first album, which came out in 1993 and wasn't just awesome, but was truly groundbreaking in the music, the lyrics, 
the attitude, all of it. And I know the album was re-released on streaming platforms in 2018 when it hit the 25-year mark. And it's why so many young women I know have become devoted fans. They're like, wow, this Liz Fair, she she gets us. It resonates with them the same way it resonated with me in 1993. Because, you know, when I heard it, I was like, I've never heard anything like this. It sounds like me. <laughs> like the promise, the potential, the frustration, the anger, everything that was in me that I hadn't yet found a way to give voice to. That's the best compliment. That's exactly my favorite type of compliment, that there's a resonance yes. between your life and mine and that we're kind of sisterly speaking to each other. Our subconsciousnesses are communicating. Particularly at that point, right? Because we're both, you know, in our 20s. Yeah. What I took out of it was a woman daring to say things, not only that women don't normally say, but that I wasn't sure I was allowed to think. But did you think you were writing something that was very different and groundbreaking coming from a woman in real time? Or what did you think you were doing? I think I was fed up with boyfriends making me mixtapes and lecturing to me about music. And I love the mixtapes. Like they really were a fantastic education in terms of what was going on in indie rock. Like I dated guys in bands, you know, like my college boyfriends. Mm -hmm. It was just very musical at Oberlin College, which is where I went to school. and. I felt like by the time I reached 23, I was about done being lectured to, you know, that radio is terrible and mainstream music is awful. And like, <laughs> it felt mm -hmm. like my fair lady or, you know, like, <laughs> and I felt this urge to sort of tackle this thing of the album. Like I started on piano when I was very young and then I moved to acoustic guitar and took lessons. And at some point in that sort of seventh, eighth grade age, I had cut a deal mm -hmm. with my guitar teacher because she knew I didn't like to practice and didn't like to read music. She said, if you bring me in a song every week, you know, I won't tell your mom what we're doing. You know, like I was done with Dan Fogelberg. I was like, I just can't. Um, I don't want to do this anymore. And so she sort of started me, Mrs. Gold in Evanston. She started me. Wow. Writing songs. And I'd continued to write songs all the way along the line, though my major was visual art, interning for famous artists and moving to New York to be in that art scene. And you know, I worked for Nancy Spiro and Leon Golub and Ed Paschke. So my focus was entirely visual art. I had an art history, studio art combined degree. And music was just something I sort of did by myself. But by the time I reached 23 and it had these like experiences with, what do you call them? The gatekeepers of indie rock. I just felt like, you know, how hard can it really be? You know what I mean? Like, yes. <laughs> I've had that realization in my own life too. You're like, wait a minute. I like work really hard. I prep. You're, you know, at 23, you've been writing songs for 10 years. And when you're 23, 10 years is almost half your life. You're like, I know what I'm doing here. And then you kind of have that breakthrough where you're like, I got it. <laughs> Yeah. And I thought more recently about it. And I think that what was different, Liz, about the music and the lyrics was that you, you had a baseline approach that women should be valued as much as men. You had a baseline that like, I am to be valued, respected, deserve all the best, 
that any man would. And that was like never a question in your lyrics. And I feel like people may shorthand why Guyville was important. But for me, I thought that was the first time I heard a female artist, you know, at least in my experience, I'm sure there are others, but speak with that kind of confidence and certitude. Did you feel like that in real time? No, I didn't feel confident at all in real time. But what I did was I sort of took my education and thought to myself, well, how do you make a record? And again, a boyfriend shows up. You know, I didn't have that many. <laughs> Not everywhere, but like, you know, like. <laughs> there was like, a boyfriend for the studio. Yeah, like, <laughs> there was a boyfriend for after hours. There was a boyfriend post-college when I was living in Wicker Park in Chicago, mm-hmm. which was a very like bohemian sort of transitional neighborhood. It was, you know, gentrifying, I guess, early gentrifying. Mm-hmm. And he came over to my apartment and I had a box of old cassettes that the previous tenant had left. Oh. And I was saying, you know, like, how do you make a great record? Like, what is the best record that's ever been made, ever? And I think he looked at me with a little bit of resentment, like, oh, you're going to take this on, you know, because he probably wanted to make a record or had tried to make a record or something like that. And I picked up Rolling Stone's Exile on Main Street, the cassette out of this old dusty box. And I'm like, is this a really <laughs> good record? And he's like, uh, yeah, you know, it's like one of the best records ever made. And he's like, why don't you do that? Why don't you do a double album with this just dripping sarcasm? And I kind of looked back like, well, why don't I? And so I studied the Rolling Stones and I wanted to make the female equivalent, like a conversation where Mick would describe an interaction with a woman. I became that woman answering back to him. Or if I couldn't find my way into that conversation, I would take what he was talking about and try to write a song about my own experience of that same feeling or that same circumstance. I was a trained artist. I had a leg up in a lot of ways. I knew not to be too on the nose. I knew not to imitate. I knew not to steal or you know plagiarize. I could understand the concept. And I think because the Rolling Stones have so much swagger and so much bravado that I pumped myself up into this state of legitimacy in this project. So I had the excuse of a project to make me feel safe, which I felt very experienced and knew how to do. And you do act like Mick Jagger in that. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, do. Yeah, it's like... I do. That's what we can be. It was liberating to do that. It was fun to do that. It's thrilling just to think about it. It's thrilling to think about. I mean... Those are big shoes to step into and they sort of give you their own sense of confidence because they come with so much, there's room to spare. There's, you know, a few drops here that you can borrow. And certainly I was aware of the archetype of the classic rock performer. And I knew I had to swagger and I knew I had to sort of boast or stand my ground. That's incredible. I've learned a lot from men, and I learn a lot from men's music. I'm a big fan of music. Like, I don't participate in it at all. But I learn a lot by listening to really good songwriters. Oh, yes. And I had a lot of great male mentors, too. And that was sort of my conscious experience. Because I remember prior to you and, you know, the other women in the 90s, when I saw a woman with a guitar, it was sort of an unnatural thing, you know. It's like you saw like Pat Benatar, Joan Jett, Patti Smith, like sort of androgynous, like a lot of leather, a lot of 
denim. <laughs> you know, it was like women proving that they were tough enough to play a role tough. meant for a man. And that's the hard part is like, I never wanted to be imitative of men. And you weren't. I mean, I had a mother who was very strong. My mother deserves more credit for how I turned out the way I am than she gets, mostly because she doesn't want me to speak about her in the press. But she's a very strong woman. And she went to Wellesley. And I think she had a very confident sense of herself in the world. And I don't know where she got that, but she had it and she bequeathed it to me. Like I grew up with a strong female role model. That's so important. It's so it sounds important. so basic and it is. And that's why it's so important. But every woman I talk to, you know, who's been able to succeed in a male-dominated profession. It's like, it's a mother, it's a grandmother, it's an aunt, it's a teacher, it's some early maternal figure that like that modeled that confidence for them. But when I saw you with a guitar, I was like, well, there she is. That is just a woman with a guitar. And it's such a powerful thing, you know? Yeah. Woman with a gavel, woman in an oval-shaped office, woman with a guitar, like these are symbols of power. I was like, she is just, you know, a girl from the Midwest. I was like, oh my God, this woman lives fair. She's amazing. What is her deal? She must have this very exotic background. It's like, no, she grew up in the suburbs in Chicago, very middle class, like suburban. And that was yeah. in you. That was like self-consciously in you and destined to come out. I have a theory about this. Let's hear it. <laughs> it's kind of cool. I think I did fit that sort of girl next door gone rogue a little bit. Right. And I think there was a recognition that I also benefited from because when I was in high school, my exact high school was the high school from which all those teen movies were being written. Oh. So Breakfast Club is based on my high school. I went to Breakfast Clubs and Caddyshack is based on Indian Hill Club, which is, you know, half a mile away from where I grew up. And Ferris Bueller and Ordinary People was filmed and Risky Business. So like the whole culture was getting to know our specific area, our tiny plot of like three or four towns north of Chicago. Home Alone is filmed in a house that I can walk to yeah. from my parents' old house. Like I already was familiar to a lot of people as a type. As a type of like, looks like the girl next door, but there's more going on there. Well, yeah. I mean, isn't that true of every woman? I mean, yes. don't women traditionally have a lot more to offer and then influence the man with the power? They're like behind the yes. curtain kind of thing. Yes, yes. Yeah. that is what's happening. But I think that contributed to my recognition in the larger culture. They'd been seeing stories about girls just like me. They had been living in a world just like the one I came from. Almost like you could pluck me out of like a John Cusack movie and be like, oh, like Lily Taylor just picked up a guitar. And now she's like a rock star. It's as if Lily Taylor just went, you know, indie or something. Right, right. I had no idea about that. That is crazy that you went to that same high school. I don't know if it's true. It's just a theory. Yeah. But I love what you said about me just being a woman with a guitar and not a tough woman, just a woman who picked up the guitar and stepped into that point position and just kind of owned it. Yeah, it really made a difference for me seeing you with that symbol of power. Unfortunately, we have to pause to pay some bills, but when we're back, we're headed down memory lane to talk about what's changed since the 90s for women musicians. 
We'll be right back to just something about her with Liz Fair. And we're back to just something about her with one of my favorite rock stars of all time, Liz Fair. And Liz, I want to hear about when you first started making albums in the 90s. Did you think women stood a chance and would eventually have a bigger role in rock and roll? And did it turn out how you expected? I'm almost happy it happened this way. I stepped back from the industry when my son was in the early part of my motherhood. I felt like I could take him with me on tour, which was a Mm -hmm. hell of a thing. Let me tell you, if you want to do like radio stops, sound check parties, signings, shows on a bus with like eight guys and then your toddler son, you know, like I told him, I'm like, honey, we're going to go on a pirate ship and there's going to be pirates there. And like, they were so sweet. Like everyone would, in the truck stop, they'd find a little toy to bring to Nick. And he has never been happier than when he was like with this gang of guys on the bus. What a cool memory for him. I know, but like I was dying. You know, I was not getting sleep because we were in the back bed, you know, and he'd be like restless or waking up. And I'd be like, I went to bed at three. Like, please, no. (laughs) I live extra hours. It was crazy. But then when he got older, I kind of stepped back from touring and started composing television just so I could be around. Mm -hmm. I just felt that was what was needed. I needed to be mom. I could sense that he was coming to an age where he might get off track. So I focused on that and focused on, you know, being a composer for TV. And I lost track of what was happening in music a little bit. So when he went to college and I started my career again, I looked around and it was like as if a garden you had planted a million years ago had just burst into bloom, you know, and there were flowers everywhere and they were all different kinds and they seemed so self-possessed and they seemed so, we thought it was cool if there was a chick playing a bass in a band. That was cool, you know? And it was really cool if there was a front woman, you know, I'm thinking of like Shirley Manson. Yes. Yes. Like that was really cool. But I had not seen so many women coming with this artistic visualization of who they were presenting. They had it all. They had the songs, they had the musicianship, they had the studio skills, and they had the visual presentation of not a fantasy, but some kind of not theatrical, even just a dramatic presentation of themselves that floored me with how complete they were. And in the interim, from when I left to when I came back, it was like the crops had ripened, like we were harvesting. It was incredible. And I was intimidated, actually. I was like, wow, I can just sort of plug in and you know, sing and play. But it was intoxicating. And I wanted to be part of that world. And I still do. It's incredible, the change. You know, from what I can discern, it seems to me that even though we had we had the initial crop, <laughs> <laughs> the initial crop, all those great flowers. <laughs> well, then we had Lilith Fair. We had, then Lilith, we had Fair. Lilith Fair, yeah, which right. was a fantastic experience and nothing like anything I could remember. I think I was also planning to quit music at that point too, and then I went on Lilith Fair, and I was like, no, I'm not getting out of the game. Remind us who everybody who was on who was part of Lilith Fair. Oh my God. Well, obviously, Sarah McLaughlin, Cheryl Crow did it for a while. Natalie from 10,000 Maniacs. Right. Oh, God. Flame-haired, amazing woman. 
I'm totally forgetting her name. Not Shirley, not Shirley Manson. I can make you love me if you. Oh, Bonnie Raitt. <laughs> Bonnie Raitt. Oh my God, the story she would tell backstage. I wish I could tell you. Oh, I can't. Stories about Jackson Brown. <laughs> and then the Indigo Girls and like. These are the people that I was rolling around with. But anyway, there was just a plethora of women of all different genres. Right. Really. And that tour sold out. It was so successful. And I knew a lot about it because my booking agent was also booking this festival. And it was beautifully run, selling out. Everything was great. But I think then at some point that sort of boys club was like, all right, we've done the woman thing. Okay, ladies, (laughs) back to the guys. I wish we could get rid of the idea that like our success is diminishing theirs. That is like my cause celeb of my later life. Like, yeah. I want everybody to have a better time altogether. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a zero sum game. It can be. And it can be different. It's so often a pie and I blame the gatekeepers. I blame the middleman. My feminism has a weird sort of bent in that I am as offended by a chick flick where the male character is like hollow and superficial and unrealistic as I am when I see a woman, like I just storm off the minute I turn off any chick flicks or romantic comedies where the male is as cardboard cut out as the women have been for so long. And I sort of feel like it's a societal shift that we need to take. I also remember thinking at some point it occurred to me that like men are the way they are partially because historically we had to prepare our sons to go to war. That was always a looming possibility. And I wanted to free us from that sort of perspective too. Like I felt feminism was feminism, but at the same time, it's humanism, like in some sense. It should be humanism. It's not taking away from you. It's offering men a chance to have a second earner in the home, to spend more time with their kids, which seemed important. All those paradigms I felt should change. And as I watched women come up the ranks, interestingly, always like having to move up in the status ladder, never a leap Uh to the top. No one's ever looking for a qualified woman to come in at the top spot. They like, you know, come up little by little. It was heartwarming, but at the same time, I felt like the bigger picture was not being addressed and that there was becoming this antagonistic sense of if the women come in, we're losing stuff. We're losing our male camaraderie. We're losing the way we do things. And if you think about 80s power dressing, what I liked about the interim between my first record and now is the way women are absolutely free to be women and lean into the gifts that we bring to bear. Not that it's necessarily better. It's just different and it should be valued the same. It's different. But did you feel in the 90s, did you feel like a responsibility toward other women that there was sort of an alignment or just women doing their thing, you know? Because I didn't feel a responsibility really to other women until very late, until very recently, even like the last five years. Well, I am going to credit my mother again Mm -hmm. because she had an expression that I heard my whole life saying there's a special place in hell for women who don't support women. Is your mother Madeline Albright? Because that's... (laughs) (laughs) Did Madeline Albright go to Wellesley? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. She might have. I know. I don't know if she did. (laughs) She might have. 
I would suspect that's a Wellesley phrase that came from there. And so I I knew that growing up. And then Oberlin, of course, was a very progressive college, a small private college, which had a music conservatory with it. Another explanation of how I arrived in your life. Mm -hmm. The conservatory of music, I was in the liberal arts program. But of course, the fact that the campuses were like in one place and we're in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, like the concerts were already there for us music that the students made was part of every single weekend. mm -hmm. And that was fascinating. So there was a big sense of like, I don't know if it was women supporting women, but female run things, female connectedness, female teamwork. And then of course, when I got into the music business, it turned and I went through a phase of feeling very threatened and jealous of other women because there was this thing going on programmers would only play one woman every half an hour. Yep. And you couldn't play two female songwriters back to back. And on a bill, you could only have one or two women on the bill. Or it wouldn't sell or wouldn't sell to who they had set up their system to sell to. That's what the system was built to do because that's what they assumed would sell because they have always valued men over women because that's how the system was built. But go on, the women are put in competition with each other. We were put in competition with each other and it felt bad. It felt really bad and it made you feel the scarcity. And and the minute you bring in the scarcity and you're isolated from each other, so we were not encouraged to hang out together. It was sort of a competition and it just felt bad. You know, everyone says Guyville was, you know, this amazing record, but while I was working it, I didn't feel great. I felt vulnerable and anxious and Like it was a dangerous world I was moving through. After it came out and as you're promoting it and people are reacting to it. Yeah. And sort of that early part of my career, that sense that, you know, there was not enough to go around. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't get it, she was going to get it. Or if she got it, you weren't going to get it. And I didn't, I didn't like that. Like that doesn't feel good. It's the worst feeling. How does that feel? Julian Hatfield and I talked about this. Like we never met until later. And now we just like, love each other and would like love to play together any chance we get. And I think that happened in the late aughts. The women started sewing back up that gap. And I remember when I saw Taylor Swift bring all of her other gorgeous friends on the red carpet with her. And however superficial you think that gesture is, it was profound to me. And I saw someone sharing the spotlight with people who could equally, you know, and Lilith Fair was another moment. Like if you let the women do it, then they come together and they support each other. But if you let men move the women around the playing board, we're put in competition. It's almost like, do you want to see a mud wrestle? Do you want to see him jello wrestle? You know, like that's what it feels like. That is so well said. I mean, it's it's the worst feeling in the world when you feel threatened by another woman because you feel threatened and that feels terrible. And then you also feel guilty about it. And and it, there's like something really demoralizing because it's just a sinking feeling that you know you're perpetuating all of it by buying into this notion. And how do you possibly get out of it? And the way we've gotten out of it, like I feel like women progressively, each sort of generation believes in themselves a little more. And I feel like one of the things that, happened to you that I want to get your reaction to because I think people can learn from it is that you made Guyville and then that was, you know, totally different from what anything Bill ever had heard, right? Mm-hmm. And then you made other albums and they weren't just like Guyville. And then all of a sudden people have decided that they get to declare you inauthentic. <laughs> They've decided that they're going to put you in a box, even though what you've originally created was something they had never seen or understood or heard before. 
I think that that charge gets lobbed at women who are sort of threatening the natural order of things. But what was that like for you on that journey of like the different albums, the different kinds of music that you made along the way and people's reaction? I associate that with becoming a new mom. Hmm. You know, (laughs) when you're watching Blue Clues, you know, like, and you're watching a child like discover the world. I think I rediscovered my love of radio, you know, like the songs I grew up listening to at night alone in my bedroom and how meaningful they were to me. Mm -hmm. But then when I made the pop record, which I call the eponymous record because it was just titled Liz Fair, Liz Fair, that was when it just became an all out war. And there was just this attacking of me relentlessly by women and men in the press for being a sellout. And, you know, I forget what else. As the radio is playing your records. (laughs) As the radio is playing my records. And as everybody knows, all the words to extraordinary and rock me. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like, okay. And you probably will find this hard to believe, but that wasn't as hard for me as when Guyville first came out. When people were freaking out about the pop record, Mm -hmm. what had gone on behind the scenes was just me doing what I always do, which is like, I look at the lay of the land, I get like a spurt of productivity and I get farther in my career and then something goes wrong and it all dies again, right? And -hmm. then I resurrect myself and I go on and I do it again, I do it again, and I do it again. I feel like I've been dead and resurrected like four times. But with the pop record, I had been on Matador Records, which was an indie label. And they're super cool. We love each other still. We just did the box reissue of my first record. And so I don't want you to think there's any problem there. But at that time, major labels- They're super cool, Matador. They're super cool. They're super cool. But major labels were buying up indie labels. You know, indie had taken off too much. If you notice the early aughts, how it all became like really controlled- like boy bands, girl bands, like very industry controlled stuff. Yes. They don't like it when it's not industry controlled. (laughs) They like a product they can control and sell and they know the next one's going to work and there's a formula and they stick to it. And that's an art form in and of itself and we can all appreciate it. But what was happening in the 90s was indies were getting power outside the mainstream and the major labels. So they started attaching indies to themselves so that that power and that revenue and that momentum would come up through them. So first Matador went to Atlantic with all of the roster and that was weird and that kind of worked and kind of didn't. Then they went to Capitol Records. Mm -hmm. And then because that didn't really work and Matador wanted to leave before I made my Liz Fair, Liz Fair big pop record, like with songs from the Matrix, which did Avril Lavigne, you know. Right, right. So Matador negotiated their exit strategy from Capitol, but I was a bargaining chip. And so everybody left with Matador except me. Contractually, I was left on capital. They're like, we'll give you Liz Fair. We're going to take everybody else. And that's your prize. I don't know how it went down. I wasn't in those rooms, but I suddenly found myself. I'm guessing there were men in those rooms, Liz. There were. I'm sure there were men in those rooms. But I found myself alone on a major by myself, like wondering what the hell to do. And this is the aughts. So it's all big bands and whatever. And it was an intense sort of sink or swim. They wanted big hits. So the deal I struck with them was if I work with like big pop people and I get a couple songs that are workable for you, can I put whatever I want on the rest of the record? And they said, sure. So that's what we did. And 
here's the irony. I feel so bad for fans. They just don't know what's going on behind the scenes. They don't know that there's good people everywhere. Politics is the same. There's good people everywhere. There are good people in politics. You wouldn't think it, but there are. Yeah. So the big bad matrix were actually lovely, wonderful people that I had known socially before. And I was so surprised when they opened the door. I went to this like, you know, oh, we're going to the big machine to make a big pop song. And it was like Lauren and Graham. And I'm like, Lauren and Graham. Like, what? And so I never thought that took away from my, how are you going to take away my authenticity? I'd like to see you try. Like, please do try because I have too much of it. Yeah. So it was just a different thing. Now I'm co-writing with big pop producers. Let's see what happens. Like, this is how I'm going to swim through this circumstance I find myself in. Like the working job that I did while reporters are calling me angry and I'm trying to like soothe their souls and tell them it's just music and you can calm down. I haven't like killed anyone. You don't have to listen to it. I'm learning and growing as a performer exponentially. So those are some of my best touring times and most proudest moments that were enabled by these big pop hits. Yeah. You know, that wasn't so terrible for me, but it was exhausting to be hated all the time, you know? Yeah. But like what I hear, it's like you seem to adapt to the new circumstances, but always taking your kind of core approach and principles along the way. And I think women are particularly good at that. It's not a competition with men, but I feel like we may adapt more to changing times more readily because we've had to do it our entire careers. That is a very, very profound thing to say. Like that is both what made the journey so goddamn hard and also what probably is a superpower that we possess. Yeah, I, I think it's why women in their 50s are having a moment and having a big impact on the culture. Vice President Kamala Harris, um, my friend Mika Brzezinski, Kara Swisher, Shonda Rhimes. We've become so good at adapting that we're able to see what this particular moment needs and deliver. And what this moment needs is a quick break to pay some bills when we're back. I want to hear all about your memoir, Horror Stories, and your new album, Soberish. That's next with Liz Fair on Just Something About Her. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Liz Fair. Liz, before we get into your book, uh, your memoir, Horror Stories, and your new album, Soberish, please indulge me as I fangirl out here for just a second. There are Liz Fair lyrics that have been in my head for 25 years in some cases. I might screw this up now, but I want more than I ever knew. From Guyville. That's from Guyville. Yeah. I only wanted more than I knew. I loved ending that record that way. That was such a beautiful exit from that. And this has been so true in my life. Like, I never really thought about what I wanted or, you know, I never thought that I would be somebody who, like, wrote books and worked in a White House. And, like, looking back, I know I was never going to settle for less, but I just never really knew that. Yes. So the other lyrics are from Polyester Bride, which was on your White Chocolate Space Egg album. And it goes, but I don't believe in you've got time. I keep on pushing harder. I keep on pushing farther away. So in these, in the last moments we have together, I want to talk about what keeps you pushing harder. You wrote this memoir, Horror Stories, and you have a new album coming out in June. What's wanting you to create? What keeps pushing you harder? I mean, I want to leave behind 
all the beauty and terribleness I have in my mind. I've always wanted this from Oberlin on. I was in art history and they had given us a big fat tome called like modern art. Like that was the title. And it was big and heavy. And I was in the library trying to read this thing. And I, I was bored one day and I decided to count how many female artists they'd included. And I was flipping through the pages, like shocked that I couldn't even find a woman. And I'm like, well, it's got to get better by the 60s. So I'm like going through. And there was like, all told, probably like 25 women in this huge book. And it just made something very clear to me what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't care what medium I worked in, but I wanted to leave behind the imperfect evidence of a woman's life. With all the messiness, all the glory, all the pain, I didn't care if I was the best or the brightest. I wanted to leave behind a record of myself because to think that we can go back in history and not even know what women were thinking or feeling, all those artists that are just obscured by time because women weren't able to do that, sometimes really makes me shudder with horror. Like, oh my God, we lost the voices of all these people throughout history. And I wanted to just log on and stay on. So what interests me now, I'm really into writing. Sometimes I find like the music business is hard to do as you get older, like touring in a bus. I work with the best musicians, so I love being around them and they make the whole ride worth it. But it's tough. You know, it's like it's an athletic sport and it's a hard life. So between music and writing and, you know, over pandemic, I started painting again. I have always wanted the same thing. I want to make art and make a living making art. That's really what I want. You know, Horror Stories was the beginning of my writing and I'm writing the next book now and I hope to write many more. So it's art making for me. That's the biggest high that I ever get, creating something that didn't exist. And it's going to be around. Yeah. And it's going to be around. Yeah. What I found so great about horror stories is you're taking what are relatively small, you know, would have previously been thought insignificant moments in a person's life and showing the impact that they really do have on like our psyches and how we think about ourselves. And like, that's the female gaze, this female, this is your gaze. And it's a very powerful thing to say, there's a lot of things in our life that tell us that certain moments aren't important or we're not significant. And you're saying all of these moments are important, the ones that stick with you. And it's just really beautifully done, too. Thank you very much. That is important to me. And that's something that I think about a lot, how we discount all the sort of bumps and injuries that happen to us along the way. We don't speak about them. We try to forget about them or that dark closet that you have in your subconscious. I think there was a little something tongue-in-cheek about the title, Horror Stories. Yes. It's like horror can be whatever you're carrying. You know, right now in the culture, we have like horror movies and American horror stories and like horror, horror, horror. There's something really widely popular about that. And I wanted to sort of draw your attention back toward the personal. I felt, especially in the Trump years, intimacy, the personal, like, I felt like we needed to connect to ourselves. Like when you look at what's happening around us, you don't want to lose your personhood. You don't want to get so caught up in 
the social movements and the whatever. People keep asking me, what do I do for self-care? And I don't know what to say because I, I don't really relate. That's not a phrase from my generation. That is, not, that is not what we did. We kept pushing harder. <laughs> That's what we did. Yeah. Like rewatching The Crown with a big bowl of <laughs> yeah. soup. Does that count? Like, you know what I mean? Like, but like self-care really is healing yourself and acknowledging what's happened to you that nobody else knows about that you're still carrying. It's still impacting how you behave with the people that you're around. You know, why did you get so angry that moment? Because you're still carrying this stuff. And I hope that everyone reads horror stories and starts to acknowledge their own small moments that have somehow stuck with them and they can't get rid of. The flies in the grill of your car. You know, you've been riding down this road and there's just some stuff stuck in there that doesn't need to be. And that's self-care to be. Like yes. writing horror stories was immensely cathartic. And frightening to share. It's very personal. I, I, it's yes. very personal. And I gave myself as hard of a lens as I would give, I, harder than I gave anyone else, except for maybe like one person. So I was tough on myself. And I confessed to bad things I did that I'm ashamed of. And I hope that by doing so, it makes it a little less scary for you to tell the people in your life what's happened to you. And what can you tell us about Soberish? Because it hasn't all been released. So although I got to listen to the whole thing. I, I like it very much. I love obviously. it. <laughs> am I allowed to say, I'll say, we'll take this out if you don't want to say I it. I don't know. Am I allowed to say that? I don't know if I'm allowed But like to Spanish that. doors. Oh my God. Locked in the oh. bathroom, staring at the sink. I was just like, yeah. oh. Breaks my heart. Like that's an important moment. Every woman, every woman knows what that feels like. Yes. Locked in the bathroom, staring at the sink. Yes. When you're in public and you're absorbing some new information that has just shattered your world and you're still in public. And then when you go home, you start to wonder, you see yourself, that confidence you had just a day before is now ebbing from you. And you look in the mirror and you feel like you're becoming a ghost of yourself. And you almost believe that, like, you know, someone doesn't love you or what you thought was true isn't true. You're almost disappearing before your very own eyes and you can't stop it. I think I've experienced that multiple times in my life. I have, and yeah. I'm so glad you resonate with that. Yeah, because yeah. I brought that up with the team here. I was like, how about this for a leader? And they're like, all three of them were like, yeah, yeah, we all know what that feels like. Like that's a moment you wouldn't think to put in a big song. That's a moment you wouldn't think to monumentalize to be the first track on my new album. You know, like that's a very particular and very female moment that we all have experienced. And it's excruciating. But it's universal. And I love that my first big track, Letting You Into the Record, is about something that maybe no one else would frame a song around. Those small moments, which I find are so important. And it makes you feel less alone. You know, you just like, it's really important to know that other women know what that feels like. And that experience is worth writing a song about. You know, those moments of our life is worth writing a song about. Yeah, it's all about telling women's stories, no matter how small. Like one of your other big tracks from Soberish called Good Side, which is out now and I love and I really recommend people listen to it. But it's about breaking up in a mature way. Yeah. And just very clear that only a woman our age could write a song like that. Like you can't write that in your 20s. No, you can't. <laughs> Isn't that funny to think about good side where I'm like, why don't we stop in the, in the lyrics? Basically, what I'm saying is, why don't we stop here? 
before it gets really bad because we know where it's going and we still kind of like each other. You know, like I'm sad about it. I don't want it to stop, but I think now would be the best time for me to dip out because I can see that like, you know, you're only going to get a worse side of me after this point, you know? And that is such a mature way to look at it. And you think about that as contrasted with fucking run, which is like, you know, miserable loneliness of like, please, can I have romantic love and these assholes keep hooking up with me? Yeah, I want something meaningful and I keep hooking up and it just feels so empty. And then to come back 25 plus years later to say like, this is my deal. I'm walking out. I'm taking charge. We should leave it here. We should leave it here. (laughs) And I will leave this here. This has been, oh my God, fantastic. Beautifully done. When is the album coming out? I think it's June 4th. And like, what what is the deal with touring? Yeah, I would like to know. <laughs> I have no answers for you. I have a huge conflict of this was my perfect tour. I can't imagine a better tour. And I'm also scared to death of like, how is this going to work? I mean, everybody just has to be vaccinated. Everybody's got to be vaccinated. Well, like, know, would right? they do so, please? Here's a PSA right now. Everybody, please get vaccinated. I don't know what you're doing. Get vaccinated. Stop the self-harm. Talk about self-harm. Everybody get vaccinated. Stop it. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me with this fantastic conversation. Wide-ranging, fascinating. I loved it. Oh, my gosh. So nice. Thank you so much. Sarah, are you there? Yes. How does it feel to have interviewed Liz Fair? I mean, she said that something I said was profound. So <laughs> she I'm did. A, <laughs> I mean, I'm having kind of a big day. So yeah, it's huge. Um, and I wanted to first start this off by um, telling our listeners who have been waiting patiently in their seats for this information. It's been bugging them the whole time. I bet Madeline Albright did go to Wellesley. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I really realized that. Yeah. yeah. You know, I got a lot of things, but what was your takeaway? So I thought it was really interesting when she talked all about like Lilith Fair and she brought up Taylor Swift about bringing women along. It's like those were moments when women were given the autonomy to do it their way and they banded together and made something wonderful. And she used the phrase like when men move women around the playing board, that's when women start getting pitted against each other. Yeah. But I just thought that was great examples of of instances where, you know, in the natural order of things, when women are given a choice, they want to band together with each other. Right. You know, like just to hear her talk about how much like sustenance they all got from that and from supporting each other. Yeah. And she was talking about like the opposite was true when there was like basically an opposite quota where it's like they weren't just pitted against each other. They were actually in competition for very few spots on the radio and on these billings. So, you know, how to flip that is to make sure that they're exactly 50%. And, you know, each woman, there's some different take on her story. And I think what I find really interesting about Liz is this notion of male models. I mean, the the story of channeling Mick Jagger, oh my God. I know. It's so gutsy. And I just love that, like, she was kind of challenging her boyfriend at the time who didn't seem to think that she could do an album as good as that. But, you know, there's a lot that we can learn from and help, like, hone whatever our craft is by looking to history and models left by men, you know, but you got to put your own stamp on it. It's interesting. That's what she was sort of, she was channeling. She was channeling these male artists. And in doing that, you know, 
brought something entirely different to the music scene because it was a woman doing it. Right. It's like she was adopting the confidence and the bravado that Mick Jagger had, that the Rolling Stones had. And then what she was doing, which I think is really cool and ties into kind of like the reason why she does all of this is she was telling women's side of his stories. And so like her whole thing is like she just wants to put women's mark on history because without people like her, we don't know what women were feeling and thinking and doing in these moments in time because women's stories have been largely lost. Yeah. What's very reassuring for me to hear is that she thinks that this time with the generation of artists, young women that she sees coming up now, she does think that the whole equation has changed and she wants to be part of it. And I know she is very excited uh, to tour this album specifically, which I know we're all excited for, but I don't think yeah. there's any dates up for that yet. But I did see that she is touring with Alanis Morissette, which again is very cool. Two women who are probably pitted yeah. against each other in the 90s totally now coming together yeah. um, and touring together. And for our whole team here who I sent to Liz Fair School, uh, she told us that you graduated. So Awesome. <laughs> now all of our listeners has gra- have graduated too. Graduated from Liz Fair School. Go listen to Exile and Guyville, everyone. <laughs> also soberish. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Liz Fair for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 